0: One of the interesting things in the business is you see how people procure architects and projects and buildings and definitely looking and understanding over the years how corporate memory is very short um, and you can do a really great building for a really big organisation and 12 months later everyone who you worked with there is no longer there.
1: The seventh episode of the Business of Architecture and Design is hosted by Isabel Tolland, director of Aileen Sage Architects, a practice she and Amelia Holliday as their alter ego. Isabel is a highly sought-after speaker and thought leader and is a regular host of the Business of Architecture and Design podcast. We'd like to thank our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, and our supporting partner, Total Synergy. For this episode of the series, Isabel talks to the Principal Director at SJB Architects, architect, urban designer, and Churchill Fellow, Adam Haddo. And now, over to Isabel. Isabel.
2: Principal Director and owner at SJB Sydney, Adam Haddow is an architect and urban designer. In 2009, at the age of 35, Adam was awarded the Property Council of Australia Future Leader Award. Adam is also a member of several professional bodies, including a past chapter councillor for the Australian Institute of Architects and a founding member of the DARK Committee. Adam's diverse experience and creative expertise is recognised by numerous architectural accolades, including International Awards for CASBAR, winner of the 2015 World Architecture Festival for Mixed-Use Completed Buildings, and Cleveland Rooftop, winner of the 2018 Architizer a Award. Adam was also a Creative Director of the Australian National Architecture Conference in 2014. We're delighted to have Adam Haddo here with us in the studio. Welcome, Adam. Thank you. Tell us a bit about your background. Where were you
0: born? Um, I was born in Melbourne, but my parents at the time lived in country Victoria, so I grew up in a little town called Ararat, which is on the freeway between Melbourne and Adelaide. So it was then about three hours' drive from Melbourne towards Adelaide. Um, So we grew up, my brother and my parents and I grew up there um, on a piece of land just outside of town, far enough that you couldn't walk to town, um, close enough that it was, wasn't was a long way away, if you know what I mean. <laughs> it wasn't a farm, but it was a bit of land.
2: And what was your family like growing up?
0: Um, it was really, I mean, my, my dad was originally a plumber and then became a teacher just before I was born. So he worked at the local tech school and taught sheet metal and welding and plumbing and things like that. And my mum was a secretary and did a whole lot of different jobs, but she bought a piece of land for my dad for a, as a present. And in those days, I think she paid two thousand dollars for the for the ten acres just outside of town. My dad and then built our house with friends, and so pretty much we grew up in a house that was never finished. Like you know, it was never ever done. It's still not done. They still live in the same house. I think when we first moved in, there was no floor in the lounge room. Uh, Half the house was still, it all had a roof, but there was no windows in part of it. (laughs) So it was pretty ideal. It's it's kind of lovely. And we had horses and pigs and cows and dad used to milk a cow every morning. So we'd have literally hot milk from the cow on our breakfast (laughs) cereal every morning. Um, So yeah, it was pretty idyllic, my brother and I and mum and dad just kind of living on the hill.
2: Do you think that's what drew you to architecture and design in the first place? or
0: um, I don't actually ever remember getting drawn to architecture and design. I just don't ever remember not being, if you know what I mean. Like I just I suppose it's a cliche to say that was blocks and Lego and things like that. But I think Dad being, you know, building the house was kind of one component of it. We also, we weren't really allowed to watch TV, so we were always out in the bush. We backed onto a national park, so my brother and I and friends would always be out there making cubby huts and stuff like that. So... I think, in a certain way, there was a lot of different ways in which I got influenced to kind of follow architecture. I think also, though, I find it weird when people don't see things three dimensionally, like can't read drawings and understand what's happening above them. So I, I always just saw things in a volumetric way, which I think um, helped you know a lot in terms of wanting to become an architect, yeah.
2: So that was an easy decision when you finished high school to start architecture. Yeah,
0: there was no decision. It was right. I was always doing architecture. There was kind of I think the only decision was um, how I would get good enough marks to get into one of the universities. So that was the that was a you know that was the challenge. I never questioned wanting to be an architect. I always I always wanted to do it. I don't think I actually knew what it was at the time though. I think I, I had an idealistic vision of what being an architect was. The first three years I think I didn't you know I really loved being at university. I loved actually just being. Um, out of a small town actually at that point in time because Ararat um, has six, only 6,000 people so it was very idyllic and fantastic and lovely but at the same time it was quite isolated and remote when you know the near, you were three hours drive from anywhere really. The first three years of architecture school I was just kind of learning what a city was really like I'm trying to understand what that meant and I think the last two years of my degree was when I've actually kind of started to realise what architecture was about and really got, you know, excited by it.
2: And is your brother in a design-related profession?
0: No, my well? brother's a teacher, actually. Yeah, he's a primary school teacher. He's, right. um, yeah, he floats between doing different primary school teaching jobs. But he was a vice principal, oh, he was a principal at a one-room school in country Victoria and now he's back at the, uh, it's like one of the oldest state schools in Victoria, actually. He teaches at that, you know, right?
2: right? Yeah. Oh, no. So you attended Melbourne University? Mm
0: -hmm.
2: um, and graduated the bachelor's degree in architecture in 1997. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, 1990. I think it was 1996. Yeah, it was 1997.
2: So, but you started at SJB before you actually finished
0: your degree. Yeah. So So when I was was studying at Melbourne, uh, we were forced to have a year off between the the first degree and the second degree, and we had to do 12 months of academic work experience. So I I started working at SJB as a student uh, in 1994, um, I think literally the only reason they employed me because the previous student's name was Adam. That <laughs> so was easy. It was easy, you know. <laughs> there was only about 10 people or 12 people at SJB then. I think it was a pretty small office, the S and the J and the B. And
2: Sorry, when you say small, how small was small? I think there was
0: about 12 people. SJB had grown had grown in the early ni- late 80s and then in the early 90s there was a massive economic downturn in Melbourne and I think the office went from 30 to about... Six actually. At that stage the legal wage for an architecture student in Victoria was two dollars an hour when I year off. So we were getting so it was kind of easy to have students actually. Two dollars an hour was kind of fantastic. Right. <laughs> I think when I first started one of the one of the architects was actually also the receptionist, literally <laughs> drafting table on the reception desk in the <laughs> in the lobby. Yeah. We had an office in South Melbourne, actually now where the casino is, it was underneath the casino. When I graduated, I worked throughout university. Through there, when I graduated, I just started work at SJB. I I did actually go for other interviews, but I just enjoyed the kind of atmosphere at SJB. There was a really uh, familiar kind of sense of being there.
2: And what kind of projects did you work on when you first started there?
0: It was really diverse. Like I, I mean, SJB at that stage were doing. They were the national architects for BMW Australia, so they did BMW Melbourne. They did BMW in Rushcutters Bay in Sydney. They did the BMW Mulgrave headquarters in uh, in outer suburbs of Melbourne. They were kind of the first architects to be doing office building conversions to multi-residential. unit So there was a – SJV had a really strong connection to a number of family developers and they kind of did jobs that those developers wanted to do in this way. So they did lots of office buildings in the 80s. So there was about – I think they did like 15 office buildings down St Kilda Road, some really fantastic postmodernist buildings which are still there, which are really great. Um, they did this great building uh, at South Melbourne called Nissen House, which was a beautiful, brutalist um, – concrete building, which is just absolutely divine. And then in the 90s when the economic crash turned and developers looked to do other things, they started to look at the refurbishment of office buildings or warehouse buildings into multi-unit residential because at that stage no one really lived in Melbourne. Everyone lived outside of Melbourne. So there was this push to densify the city. Probably my first couple of jobs were working on multi-unit residential buildings like doing reflected ceiling plans and all the stuff you do, I suppose, when you're a student, colouring in DA drawings, um, making prints in the print machine, (laughs) scratching out on... You know, tracing paper.
2: It, it sounds like you've maintained good relationships with various long-term clients for the company because you've just finished the BMW
0: yeah. showroom. Yeah. yeah so, the, so the original BMW showroom in Rushcutters Bay SJB did. It was conversion from Australia Post building into um, the BMW yeah. showroom. It used to be a parcel post sorting shed. Um, and then we've just finished the new BMW headquarters, which was demolishing that building to build a new BMW building. Yeah, But funnily enough, BMW, when they came to speak to us about, uh, being in the competition for that building, didn't know we had done the original building. So it's kind of interesting when you work with big companies because often that commercial memory is lost quite easily. Yeah. So that was a competition through the City of Sydney program, and there was four offices, and we won that. That commission and worked from there. So,
2: actually, coincidental. It was
0: really coincidental, actually. I mean, we do have lots of long term client relationships, so mostly they exist in um, private business. So, where you've got somebody, uh, you know, a family who owns a business or a person who owns a business. I would say 80% of our work is through repeat clients, Um, 20% would be through competitions or new clients. One of the interesting things owning the business is you see how people procure architects and Projects and buildings, and definitely looking and understanding over the years how corporate memory is very short. Um, mm. And you can do a really great building for a really big organization, and twelve months later, everyone who you worked with there is no longer there, and there is no connection back to that business again. Right. Whereas you work with a private in a private business, um, and you have those relationships for thirty or forty years. It's quite you know yeah. it's quite different. Right. Yeah.
2: So, what was it? Was there something particular in particular about SJB that drew you there in the first place?
0: I think originally, when I when I first went there, it, it's, it was incredibly supportive at a personal level. Very open, very accessible, very flat structure. There was no ego. It was really kind of easy to engage with the business and with the with the partners and with the projects. So. If they believed you could do something, they would they would let you do it. So there was no yeah. It didn't matter how old you were. It didn't matter your experience. It was all about ideas and you you being able to persecute those ideas. That kind of what drew me in the in the beginning. And then we I started work there. I had been uh, post graduation. I'd been there for maybe two or three years. And we did a competition for a project in Sydney for the St Margaret's Hospital redevelopment, and we we won that. I came up to Sydney for three weeks to hand that project off to a, to one of the partners that was had moved to Sydney, John Pradell. and I think I got here in August, and it was the most gorgeous winter's day in Sydney. It was like sunny and twenty two degrees and beautiful, and I got on a plane went back to Melbourne and it was really cold and really wet. <laughs> I'm like, what am I doing with my life? Like I didn't my parent my family didn't live in Melbourne, so I had no real connection back to Melbourne. So I thought instead of being three weeks, let's make at three months and then three months has turned into 19 years and so I've just never left really. <laughs>
2: Talk to us through that transition of being an employee at SJB to becoming an
0: owner. So when I first moved up to Sydney we were doing a joint venture so I was Thorpe Architects and SJB Architects working together on the St Margaret's Hospital redevelopment and I was located, there were three or four of us from SJB located in the Pettlethorpe office in Bridge Street. And I was the most senior SJB person, which at that stage I was just a graduate. So there was not much seniority there. Charles Justin, the J and the SJB, used to fly up once a week for meetings and workshops and things like that. So we worked through that period of time. And I think maybe six to nine months into that project, The office in Sydney was only two people at that stage. It was John Pradell and Nick who are both now partners. And Charles came up and John took me out to a breakfast and they asked me to become a partner. I had no idea what that meant. Like, I literally was like, oh, that sounds nice. Why not? (laughs) (laughs) Like, my dad is a big yes person. Like, if if there's an opportunity, take it. You can always say no later. So... I said yes, so then I became a partner and, and that project was then, in terms of the joint venture, was winding up and I moved back into the Sydney office the proper in Richards Avenue in Surrey Hills and became a partner and we grew the practice from there and there was, I think there was maybe four people when I moved into the practice and then became a partner and then we've grown the office over the years. You know, at the time, the biggest challenge was the time that I remember I, I noticed the change was the first time I didn't get invited to someone's party. It was an office party, someone's birthday or something, and I found out on the Friday afternoon when everyone's leaving, it was the Saturday night, and I was like, oh my god, I didn't get in- I didn't get invited. Did I do something wrong? And it's it was just that realization that, that that people saw you differently. You didn't necessarily see yourself differently, but people saw you differently. So that was probably the first Thing and then I think the next bit was um, just having to be responsible in a way, like the buck had to stop at you. So if there was a problem, independent of whether it was you were involved in it or not, um, you had to be the one that would take responsibility for that and meet with clients or meet with builders or meet with council, whoever it was, and sort it out. You couldn't you couldn't just decide to leave the practice. You know, I think that's one thing that people forget about when they start a business or start an architecture practice that you know as an employee if you don't like something it's actually quite easy to change you just resign and move to another practice or move to another country even another state (laughs) uh when you own a business when you and then you have those kind of responsibilities it's super difficult to really shift the titanic in a way like even if it's a small business you've still got responsibilities and rents and superannuation for your employees and all that kind of stuff so you know that's the other kind of moment when you realize that it was bigger than what you thought it was
1: To hear more from Adam Haddo about how to future-proof your business, register now at australiandesignreview.com for the inaugural one-day Business of Architecture and Design Conference to be held on Monday the 11th of November in Sydney. Register at australiandesignreview.com.
2: So when the Sydney office started, it was quite small and now it's grown to being larger, in fact, than Mm. the Melbourne office. Mm -hmm. So in Sydney, you're around 90 employees Mm -hmm. and in Melbourne, you're about... A third of the size. How did that happen?
0: I think that naturally in business, there's a kind of organic ebb and flow of scale and of partners. And in Melbourne, the S and the J and the B, or the S and the J have retired, and the B, the Michael Bialik, is still a partner in the Melbourne office and is slowly selling down. It takes time for that transition. I think the offices naturally grow, contract, and grow with those, those kind of transitions, and they need to find their own feet with new partners. With the Sydney practice, though, John and I, were the principles of the... Uh, Of the business, and over the years, I think we both have a bit of a yes mentality. We have quite a flat structure mentality, but also a yes mentality. We like, we like, we get excited about projects. We always see the opportunities. We kind of rarely see the constraints, (laughs) and that tends to mean that the practice grows because you kind of just take on more work, and it's quite organic. It's never there was never a business plan that said by X days we want to be X number of people. It was more just, wow, that's an amazing opportunity, or amazing project, or a really great client. Or something I'm really interested in investigating, or drawing, or making a model of. So you kind of take it on, and then you think, "Oh my gosh, we need some more people." And then you get more people, and then suddenly you wake up and you're 95 people, and you're like, "How did that happen?" <laughs> so <laughs> um, how did
2: that happen? Like, what was the quickly or slowly did it grow?
0: Um, it ebbed and flowed. So I think probably for the first 15 years, a um, maximum would have been about 40 people, and that would that grew and uh, you know contracted and grew over time. And the GFC was you know painful. I think as it was for everyone in business. And then more recently, I think we've got more partners, so that always helps. Um, so Jonathan and Nick are partners, and we also helped start the planning division. So Stuart and Alison and Scott and Michael um, run that division now. I think it grows because you have more people, more support, more people thinking about things, more people at the table. That's really how it grows for me. I think there's a natural – we've kind of found there's a natural number of staff or that you can look after, in inverted commerce. In terms of then the project scale and the quality of the outcome. Right. And for us, that sits between 10 and 15 staff per director right? and once it gets more than that it becomes much more challenging once it gets less than that it becomes a little bit boring <laughs> mm. so kind of trying to manage that it's a bit of a it's an in science but that's what we tend to find.
2: So you have different departments as well is that also part of how people are distributed I guess between the urban design and yeah. architecture and interiors?
0: Yeah so originally um, SJB was set up with architecture interior design urban design, and they were set up all as separate individual businesses with separate ownership and separate directors in separate states. So there was actually um, eight different businesses across the two states. Um, More recently in New South Wales, we've combined the architecture, interiors and urban design into a single practice, uh, which has been much better, I think. I think sometimes if you isolate some of the businesses, particularly uh, urban design, for example, it's just quite a small pond for urban design to generate work from often the benefit in their work is further downstream in terms of scale so they'll work on a master plan for a project and while that's you know exciting for the the urban designers and intriguing the actual excitement happens when you start to build the buildings that respond to that urban design master plan and so for the urban designers bringing them into the business and making them part of the 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 broader business has been really positive so Jonathan Mm. in particular has found that a a lot of value Mm. Uh, and then more recently uh, with the interiors in the in the practice as well. Yeah, it's been similar. So
2: when you became a principal, what did that mean? Did that mean you um, then took on a financial interest in the company yeah.
0: too? Yes, and the J&B were, comp- were very incredibly generous, uh, actually, in terms of, I mean, the business was very small then and we really didn't make any money at all <laughs> back when I became a partner, but they allowed me to buy into the practice um, over years. So that was really generous of them. They kind of essentially extended me a no interest loan for a period of time and uh, I bought into the practice. And I think we've taken that approach over the years to kind of that generosity. We're trying to give that back, that generosity back to the people who come into the practice as well, that it shouldn't be overly onerous to buy into the practice um, to become a partner. It should be something quite easy and simple and the, the financial component of it, while it's necessary for me. A tax office perspective, you need to prove that you're selling the, selling the business and someone's buying it. Um, we should make it as simple as possible.
2: And you mentioned there's quite a flat structure. So does that mean in terms of proportionally and the um, hierarchy, I suppose, yeah. of people within the practice? Yeah. How does that work?
0: It probably sounds like, it probably sounds very unflat actually when I explain it because there are partners who are directors and there's associate directors, senior associates, associates, Project architects, you know, st- staff, but I think the the flatness of the structure is really about a culture and a, and a kind of mentality that we've retained a small practice feel, even though we are, I would say, a medium sized practice, and we constantly get that feedback from staff that actually it's we've been able to hold that. That cultural feel of the practice and that I think in a way the flatness is more about the ability for people to from every different level within the business to contribute to the business A design level obviously but also at a strategic level and a kind of cultural level that people feel like they can impact what we're doing um, and how we act from that point of view we tr- we try to make it as flat as possible there's obviously situations where there needs to be hierarchy to deal with issues and challenges and yeah pictures and things, but I think we try to get people to engage as kind of equally as we can across the practice.
2: Okay. And is there much connection between the Melbourne practice and the Sydney practice?
0: Um, We explain it like we're sisters. So we have Christmas together, we get together for each other's birthdays, but we are our own individual people with our own relationships. uh, And we share those relationships. We have similar friends, (laughs) similar clients, but we are our own people. And I think that's quite important. And I think it's kind of important too, in the sense that the Melbourne practice, even though it's the oldest practice, um, it's actually almost now the youngest practice because they've got the youngest directors where the Melbourne, the Melbourne used to be the old one and we were the young one and we're Mm. kind of growing up and the Melbourne practice is renewing. So there's kind of constant movement across Mm. the practices. Cyclical kind of change. Yeah. And I think also it's really important that people feel like they have the ability to drive their own agenda, that it's not corporate. Mm. Uh, I think sometimes if they become too interlinked, they become really corporatized and there's a whole yep. lot of kind of regulation, inverted commas, about how you do things. And actually, we want to kind of strip that out. We, we want to retain the nimbleness that happens when you're a small practice mm-hmm. and yeah, not, not get into something which has so much structure to it that actually it becomes debilitating.
2: Can you tell us a bit about how you personally have grown as a business leader?
0: I think that... I mean, I don't actually like to call myself a business leader.
2: Have you had any mentors in particular that have influenced you?
0: I was thinking about this the other day because um, we were talking about mentors in the office because we have a kind of mentor program with the Institute but also within the office and Probably my mentors have been my parents in a way. My dad was always a kind of quite entrepreneurial person who, you know, he never owned a business. He, he worked as a teacher, but he was kind of entrepreneurial with his hands. So he, uh, kind of in a way, he believed that if you, if you wanted to do something, you can do it. You didn't have to ask someone else to do it for you so i think that has come across in the way in which we've grown or i've at least brought to the practice the thing, the kind of mentality i want to bring to the practice is that actually you can do it like there's no there's nothing stopping you do it if you want to do it do it i think i've also had lots of different mentors informally, clients who I, th- who I think are unbelievably remarkable, who have, take risks and are really generous with their time and their spirit, but never, never somebody who I sit down with once a month and sit down and talk at a kind of, you know, formalised mentor level. But, you know, when we first started S- St. Margaret's, um, the client was 85, I think, is it always 85 when he started? And you know, amazing mentor to have somebody who'd been, who was of, of an age who could look back on their life and, t- you know, almost tell you what was important to, to focus on and what wasn't, wasn't important, which was really quite interesting in a development, in a kind of architectural sense, project sense. And then probably more recently, people like Michael Grant, who is an amazing client, who just has endless amounts of passion and, and energy that you know they're just boundless um, and that that kind of level of energy you kind of realize is super important if you if you're leading something in a lot of ways as a leader of the practice you're almost the cheerleader both internally and externally <laughs> yeah. so you know you're kind of out talking to clients or councils or communities about projects and what you're wanting to do as a business, and then internally you're kind of cheerleading to kind of keep everyone focused and together and herd the cats in a way. Right. Um, keep them focused on what's important. You can, it's really easy to start focusing on things that aren't important. Yeah. Uh, the world we live in is super, super complex, so it's kind of try to, how do you edit things out? So I think that's probably what I've learned most from right. lots of clients. That's um,
2: very interesting that you yeah. say the clients have been your biggest kind of mentors, because mm. actually I was talking to Ninochka Titchkoski at yeah. BBN and she said the same thing, that oh, right. actually clients have often been her greatest mentors. And yeah. it was something that I've never really thought about, actually. Yeah. That, and I think maybe that's symptomatic of our profession, perhaps, that a lot of architects don't realise that perhaps they need to be looking outside of the profession for mentors.
0: I think so. I mean, I think I think the thing we're not taught at, architect- at school, at university, at least I wasn't taught at the university, was that, you know, making a project is a really collaborative effort. There was this position that there was the master architect when I was at university and that just couldn't be further from the truth. Like even at a daily daily level in the office, you know, clients like to talk to me because I'm the partner, you know, but actually it's not me. Like there's like 20 people working on the project and there's people who know a lot more about the project than me. It's just that I'm the one in that instance who can bring it together and talk about the bits that they need to talk about. And, And that doesn't make me more knowledgeable about the project. It just makes me the person... And who can kind of find the piece that the hook for them and understand it? Mm. Um, and I think clients are really good like that. They they actually. They can see that. there. A lot of cases, clients are far more isolated than we are. They have smaller teams. Mm. Um, they take bigger risks. So they're much more exposed. And in a way, you kind of learn from that exposure. They, their failures and successes are far more diverse than yours. Um, so you can kind of learn from that, I think, mm. a lot.
2: Yeah. So in 2006, you received a Churchill Fellowship um, to undertake some research overseas. Mm-hmm. Could you talk to us a bit about that yeah. opportunity and how it came about?
0: Yeah, so the Australian Churchill Foundation is a foundation that was set up after Winston Churchill's death was completely funded by the Australian public. So the Australian public donated money to the Churchill Foundation to the trust and the trust now has millions of dollars in trust which they make money off every year. And I think last year they did uh, like 150 um, fellowships and the fellowships are meant to be similar to a Rhodes Scholarship in a way, but far less academic, so much more about trying to connect people in Australia to the globe. So if you get to a certain point in your career where you need to step outside of the country to gain knowledge or interest or connections, that the foundation is really looking to try and fund that. So I applied for a Churchill Foundation, it was pretty straightforward, and my ambition was to look at models of urbanisation that were happening globally, um, in the kind of densification of our cities, how were different places around the globe dealing with the challenges of densification. I'd, I'd just come off the back, I think, of about five or six years of doing community consultation meetings, and... At the best, they're invigorating and exciting. And at the worst, I think the worst one, worst community consultation I've ever been to, I got spat on. And these weren't challenges that were just being dealt with in Sydney or Australia. They were kind of challenges that were being dealt with globally. So how are different cultures dealing with them? I think often we are good at in Australia particularly, picking things from um, international examples and try to drop them in an Australian context. And mm. I'm, I completely disagree with that. I think that we have our own culture and our own sense of place and our own environment, and we have to be far more diligent about understanding the kind of European or Asian or American examples and then contextualising them. Mm. So I was interested in just looking at the way in which people had, or, or countries really, or cities had dealt with consultation and densification and the communication of that, and the propositions they were making to their communities about how to deal with housing shortage and housing supply and housing affordability and what made a good urban space you know when I I traveled for six months and when I became a partner actually one of the things I did do when I became a partner is I said to the partners at the time I would love to be a partner but within the first five years I want to take 12 months break because I had never really stopped from Mm. school Uh, and they said yes so it had been 10 years I think and I ended up applying for the Churchill and took six months off and that six months just gave me the opportunity for a bit of space um, out of the practice Mm -hmm. and also the space to think about some of these questions that we were dealing with as an office that you can it was quite good because you see the successes and failures in cities um i did a lot of work in holland there's a lot of dutch cities that are exceptionally good from an urban design point of view and a lot of parts of those cities which are exceptionally poor Mm. and just understanding what was what made one work and not work in the new projects um, was really super super intriguing actually
1: If you are serious about leading your architecture or design business, you can't afford to miss Peter Verwer at the Business of Architecture and Design Conference in Sydney on November the 11th. Peter will outline vital information on growth opportunities, give you insights into working with international clients, and predict where your business opportunities lie over the next three to
0: five years. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. He thinks at a speed is just superhuman.
1: That was Adam Haddo, Principal Director, SJB Sydney. If you run a business in the built environment industry, this keynote is essential. Register now at australiandesignreview.com. Thanks for listening to this episode. Join us next time to hear more about Adam's journey through the business of architecture. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review, Madeline Swain, editor of Architectural Review and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organisations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralises your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.